Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6 and verse 19, if that's an unexpected reference this morning, I will explain. As you know, as members, we have been walking through the magnificent book of Revelation uh, this year, and last week we came to a chapter in Revelation that, that describes the downfall of the world system that idolizes pleasure and luxury and wealth, and there's a lot of lamenting in that passage about the, the end, the result of those who have lived for wealth and luxury. And, and we, we wanted to make sure that we were benefiting from that very strong warning that exists in the book of Revelation by taking a, a week out of Revelation and, and focusing on something Jesus talks about related to money and wealth. So that's the, the reference this morning, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. We do this because money, as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6.10, money is something that it is easy to love. Money and the feeling of power and self-protection that it gives, the pleasures that it can afford, it's something easy to love. Money itself is not bad, but it's something that can, can consume humanity. As in, at the end of that consumption is described in Revelation. Paul writes to Timothy, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. A root of all kinds of evil. Uh, for the last eight years or so, uh, I have off and on been battling a particular viney weed that grows in my backyard. Sometimes I win, sometimes it wins. Uh, and I don't know very much about plants. That's why the battle has been ongoing. Uh, but I have suspected at times, I couldn't prove this, but I've suspected that this particular viney weed um, has a root underground because it pops up in various places, seemingly disconnected, but it's the same kind of weed. And maybe it's not the way it works, but, but just imagine that if you would. Imagine a, a weed that has this long root underground and it starts popping up all over the place. And, and imagine that I didn't fight it, it got, it got worse and worse, and, and it began to cause real damage. First it destroyed the grass in the yard, then it began to creep under the patio, and you began to see cracks form in the patio. Perhaps it could even begin to affect the foundation of the house if it was strong enough. Ima imagine a weed that began to cause trouble all over the place, destroying various foliage in the yard and crumbling edifices and so forth, and I think you have some idea of what Paul is warning Timothy about when he says the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it's not hard to imagine what kinds of evil come to Paul's mind. The, the love of money can cause an evil over here of conflict in marriage, can cause an evil over here of neglect of the fellowship of the church because of the pursuits or the idolizing of a career. It can cause an evil over here of affording evil pleasures. It can cause an evil over here of anxiety and worry because something we love we don't have enough of. It, it can cause a worry over here of comparison and envy and jealousy. And that's just a short list. But when Paul says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, I think he pictures some kind of grotesque weed that has a single root, but it causes other kinds of problems in life. 
And you have to address not just those problems, but the root. And, and because Paul says that, and because of Revelation's overwhelming warning that so much of the world is devoted to this love of money, we as pastors wanted to make sure, look, we don't want to address all of the outcroppings of a weed, conflict here and discontentment there and anxiety here and, and, and this issue with the marriage over there. We, we don't want to address all of those things and not address the underlying root because you can snip off expressions of a root all day long. If you don't deal with the root, they're just going to keep growing. They're going to keep destroying. And, and so because of that and because of our, our, our concern for our own souls and our love for you, we wanted to make sure, look, are, are, are we sufficiently aware of this root and how addressing it can then affect so many other problems that it's causing at the same time? And, and that's why we wanted to pause and let Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, part of the Sermon on the Mount, speak to us this morning. So let's read this, remembering this is God's Word Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Lord bless the preaching of your word. I, I would imagine that one of my far more multi-gifted friends, and there are many in this church, will come up to me afterwards and say, have you considered this weed-killing product? Um, because I'm sure that will take care of the problem that you obviously have no ability to solve. Um, thank you. I, I, I'll take all recommendations. Um, but if I can point out, this is weed-killer for the love of money. If, if you want to get at the root and pour something on the root of that weed that causes all kinds of evils, this is weed killer. This stuff gets it done. This passage gets it done. If we will apply it to the love of money. And Jesus gives it in the Sermon on the Mount, and he hands it down to us through the generations of the church so that we will apply it to this nasty root in our own heart so that godliness can flourish, not just in the area of money, but in all the areas where the love of money affects the rest of our life. This is weed killer for the money-loving soul. All right, that's what this passage is. There's, there's three basic sections. I'm sure you can see that in your text as I do. Three sections that we might call motives. Motives to not love money or to put it positively, to invest our money in God. That's the positive alternative 
that, that this passage exhorts us to. Don't, don't love money. Instead, invest your money in God. That There is a, a positive way that money can be used. Money itself is not evil, but the love, the idolizing of money is evil. However, there is a positive way we can use money, and it is this. Invest your money in God. That is the overwhelming emphasis of this passage in these three sections provide motives for us to do that, to invest our money in God. All right, motive number one, first paragraph. Only heavenly deposits are safe. Motive number one, only heavenly deposits are safe. If you've been a Christian any length of time, I'm sure you've read this paragraph. Jesus commands, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth and then he explains why he's issuing this command. It's not just a stark command, not just because I say so. It's actually for our good. He says, because on earth, moth and rust, the word there, uh, they, they struggle with that word. It could be a corrosive material. It could also uh, apply to, to vermin that eat grain. It's basically speaking of any kind of corrosive thing that uses up the good stuff that you have. He says, in this earth, there are these realities because we live in a fallen world where things like moths eat expensive garments. Rust destroys what might be valuable. And not only are these, these, so to speak, natural things affected by the curse where things break down and they don't last forever, they're corroded, but, but people are sinful. Thieves break in and steal. In other words, there's, there's active dangers to our treasures on earth. There's, there's sort of passive dangers, if we can put it that way, because the world is broken, and there's things like mosquitoes and moths and rust. There's also active human dangers, thieves and wars and stock market crashes and things where people make mistakes or do evil against us. He's saying don't, don't lay up treasures, don't store up, don't bank your deposit, ultimately, your ultimate deposit in a place where there is so much vulnerability. Don't do that. Instead, lay it up in a place where there is no vulnerability. Lay it up in heaven, and then he creates the con contrast in verse 20, where neither moth nor rust destroys, there's no effect of the curse, and where thieves do not break in and steal, evil and sinners cannot get in there, that's the place you want your deposit. Only heavenly deposits are safe. Invest your money in God. Invest your money in God. Now, now this is an incredibly benevolent command, and I think this gets passed over when we read this passage because we read it moralistically. But it, it is worth noting that no sinner deserves to be able to exchange earthly treasures for heavenly ones. Isn't it easy to kind of just skip over, oh, God's telling us to give to him. Wait, wait, time out. You realize God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need, not in a, in a financial sense, what could earthly money possibly contribute to heaven? It's not like a real earthly bank where at some level or another they need your money to be a bank. God doesn't need our money to be God. And heaven doesn't need our money to be glorious. This, this is more like taking something that is relatively worthless to God and saying, I will turn it into something infinitely valuable. If you invest this relatively worthless thing in me, I will turn it into something that is incredibly valuable. Or you can invest your relatively worthless thing in a place where even there it is vulnerable. This is a benevolent command. 
This is a command that is only possible because the person speaking it was rich and became poor for our sakes. It is only possible for sinners to have any hope of treasure in heaven because Jesus Christ, who spoke the Sermon on the Mount, died on the cross to pay for greedy, money-loving people and paid for their greed and their love of money in such a way that their sins would be forgiven and they have the hope of eternal life. Jesus just sprinkles in the hope of heaven, and we are required to ask, wait, wait, time out. How can a sinful people have any hope of having treasures in heaven? Because Jesus makes it possible for sinners to be there. So this is a benevolent command in that it's possible at all. It's also benevolent in that we're able to exchange relatively worthless earthly treasures that are vulnerable on earth, to infinitely valuable treasures that we ought not to be able to look forward to. This incredibly benevolent command. This isn't harsh. This isn't unkind. This isn't onerous. If I can use an illustration, imagine an extremely generous father who comes to a very young son on his birthday and gives him 10 crisp $1 bills. And he says, son, this is your birthday present. But... There's more to this present. I'm giving this to you. You can use it however you want. But I have another offer. For every dollar that you give back to me, I will give you $1,000 next year. I will give you $1,000 next year for every dollar that you give to me. And the son thinks about it, and he thinks about it, and he says, well, I, but I really want this thing. And I really want, that. I, th- I think I'll, I'll, I'll keep it, but uh, thank you so much. I, I want to keep this, this money. And he puts it in his special little money pouch like little kids have, and he puts it next to his bed, and he goes to sleep clutching it. Well, one day, the family has a puppy. And the puppy comes in and finds a great new chew toy and just obliterates this little money pouch. And the son comes home and says, Dad, Dad, look what happened. Half of the dollar bills are ruined. There's only five left. What do I do? do? Can can I have five more dollars? And he says, no, son. No, I I gave you the ten dollars. That's your birthday present. But, But I only have five left. What do I do now? The deal remains the same, son. Every dollar you give me, I will give you $1,000 next year. But now I only have five. Now I only have five, and, and the thing I want costs five. But what, what do I do now? What's the wise thing for the son to do? And is the father unkind to make him make that choice? No. What's he doing? He's teaching him a lesson. The father is being kind to us. Jesus is being kind to us. Look, it is obvious. Anybody that's an adult knows this is such an obvious choice. Five dollars, give it all to him. Give it to him. Well, you should have done it the first time and you didn't, but surely now, give it all to him. Give, give, invest your money in God. I, I, I am not saying by give it all to him that you should give all of your money away because just to make clear, nobody, this is a metaphor, nobody take that example. But my point is that Jesus is saying the investments we store up on earth, they are, they are vulnerable. 
The richest people can lose it all. And everybody before them can lose it all. We, we live in a sin-cursed, sin-infested, corrosive, moth-eaten world. And even the money we think we have here is vulnerable. That's what Jesus is saying. It doesn't mean automatically you will lose it all, but you could lose it all. There is one place, one place that is absolutely, absolutely secure, absolutely certain, absolutely safe, and that is when it is invested with God. Jesus isn't being onerous here. He's just saying what is. There is one place you can invest money where, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, and then he makes the point that there is a connection also with where you give because he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you want your heart to be tied monetarily with chains of gold to this sin-cursed world? Or do you want it to be tied with chains of faith to the world to come? That's what Jesus is saying. Money ties our heart one way or the other. Jesus says, where do you want your heart to be tied? With investments here or investments there? You tie your heart one way or the other with how you use your money. How we use our money and only heavenly deposits are safe. What's, what's ultimately the, the goal Jesus is getting at? Listen, invest your money for the future. Invest your money in God. Invest your money in God. Only heavenly deposits are safe. Now, how do we do this? How do we invest our money in God? How do we store up treasure in heaven? Well, biblically speaking, there are two major categories of investing our money in God. This isn't just a, a mystical idea giving, having a, an affirmational thought of giving. No, the Bible is supposed to actually change our real life. We don't, we don't believe in a mystical religion where we nod our head and say, yes, giving is good, and go out and do whatever we want. No, 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 that, that's not what Christianity is. It changes the reality of our life. There's two general biblical categories. One is to share what we have with others, loving our neighbors generously without expecting any return, and the second one is to give to the ministry of God in the gospel. Those are the two general categories of investment and giving that are celebrated and commanded in Scripture. Giving generously to others, especially those in need, especially those of the household of faith, and, and investing in the ministry of the gospel. Now, we want to note that in Scripture, you're not given a choice between those two you're not given a choice, well, I, I prefer to apportion my giving towards those in need and not to the ministry, or, or no, I prefer to give to the ministry and not to be generous towards others. No, this isn't a choice either or. No, we are called to both of those things. And if I can also speak to a, a, a bit of a biblical fallacy that I have heard over the years, and, and that is when somebody says, well, I, I give to God by my service. I give my hours. Well, no, 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 that, that's a third category that we are also commanded to do. I think all of this comes from the idea that I, I have most of my life is mine, but I'm supposed to give a certain percentage to God, and I choose to give my service, or, but maybe sometimes I'll give my money in that percentage. No, 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 all of our life is God's, and he commands service, 
actual service, physical service, labor for others. He commands financial giving to the ministry of the gospel. He commands generosity towards others. And if somebody says, well, how am I supposed to live doing all those things? Well, that's exactly the point. Our life is found in God. And he calls us to all of those things, not, not to a certain life on this earth. So, so no, it, it's not sufficient. It's, it's really bad biblical exegetical work to say, well, my, my giving is my service. Other people give money, I give time. No, 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 no. They're supposed to give time too, and you're supposed to give money. If you reverse it, you could see the problem. A, 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 a very wealthy person says, well, I don't serve the church in any practical way. I never have any people over to the house. I never build them up with my speech. I never help them in any tangible way in their life. But I, I just give money to the church. No, no, no. You, you're, you're called to both. You're called to share with those in need. You're called to serve. You're called to give. We are all called to this. This is what it means to invest our money in God. And this really is the summary of the biblical teaching. I mean, even if you go back to the Israelites giving toward the tabernacle in the Old Testament or the early church sharing with their fellow members or Paul commending the Philippians or challenging the Corinthians on the topic of generosity to spread the gospel of, Je- of Jesus or Jesus himself commending that widow who gave all that she had in comparison to the gays, those who gave only a fraction the, the Bible commands more than just a mystical idea of storing up treasures in heaven, but it, it commands actually transferring our wealth out of our own control and into the benefit of our neighbors and the ministry of the gospel. Actually see, seeing it go, if you can visualize this, it doesn't command just the idea, Lord, it's yours. Lord, all that I have is yours. I'm free from the love of money. And the Bible effectively says, prove it. Prove it. Because many Christians could say, I I really, I've prayed extensively. And I've said to the Lord, I'm free from the, the love of money. And the Bible says, yes, very good. Prove it. Let it go. Outside of your control. Outside of your control. Why? Because sin is deceptive and the love of money is deceptive. We can say, I'm totally free. I could let this go at any time. I'm not tied to this. Good. Prove it. The scripture calls for giving. It calls for sharing. Now, I want to appeal to you. If if you have never given faithfully, sacrificially, I'm talking about money that you've given to share with others or given to the ministry of the gospel, In the New Testament, that's the overwhelming emphasis of giving, is that we give to the ministry of the gospel, the support of the work of the kingdom, as well as sharing with those in need. If if you have never given as a a part of how you think about what it means to manage your money well, let, let me appeal to you that this is part of what it means to be a faithful Christian. And I understand perhaps you've never been taught on this. There could be someone here, and I don't know who you are because we've chosen as pastors not to know uh, the identity of who gives. We, we know money comes in. Obviously, we try to manage that faithfully, but we don't know who gives because we want to be cautious to not be biased toward those who might be more wealthy. We're trying to guard our own hearts in that. But there is a danger in that because as shepherds, this is a massive biblical category And the risk is there could be somebody that we wouldn't know about who just neglects this category in their life, and that'd be a great danger to their soul. 
and not because we're interested in their money, but we're very interested in their, their soul if they're doing that. And so you're just going to have to sort of honor system and conscience system this. If, if I am speaking to you right now and you are not faithfully giving a portion of your money and you never have, listen, uh, you need to be very concerned about that area in your life. Very concerned. That, that is a dangerous way to live. To not regularly and faithfully, if, if you're looking for a place to start, I consistently recommend the Old Testament tithe is a good place to begin. It's, it's 10% of your regular income. I, I wouldn't want to get into the biblical theology of is that an absolute New Testament standard. I, I think it's a healthy standard to begin. It, it, it communicates for many of us a, a sacrificial amount of money. And if you're able to give more than that because that doesn't represent sacrifice, you should. But that, that is a good place to begin in your investment into the ministry of the gospel. And if you don't do that regularly, let me, as a pastor, appeal to you. Listen, I don't, I, I'm saying this, I don't care if you make $10 a month. I, I'm saying this because of what the Word says about the danger of the love of money and not storing up treasures on earth. It invest Invest, start there, and if you've never done this, let me urge you, humble yourself and share with a leader, a pastor, a care group leader, a trusted Christian friend. Just honestly, I've never done that. I've never heard that. I never knew that. I mean, I give, you know, a little bit when I get my bonus, and here and there I toss a couple bucks in, but I don't give like as a part of my budget category. Listen, let me appeal to you. Talk to a mature Christian, and we can walk through the scriptures about how this is something we're called to as Christians. Let, let me urge you, for the sake of your soul, let me urge you to do this. Now, if you do give generously and regularly and sacrificially in the way the Bible commends, let me commend you and let me celebrate with you Jesus' promise that you are storing up treasures in a heaven that we believe in by faith and where Jesus says that treasure has been transferred from a relatively worthless dollar bill down here to an infinitely valuable heavenly currency up there. Let me commend you. You have a bankroll in heaven that you don't deserve to have and I don't deserve to have, and you've somehow been able to exchange monopoly money for heavenly coin. And that is an amazing gift of grace. Be commended. Be encouraged if you are faithfully and generously and sacrificially giving towards the ministry of the gospel and sharing with those in need. Be commended. Be encouraged. I'm sure there are many who have the gift of generosity, and that's one of the, the real downsides of not knowing is I wish I could celebrate with you. Look, the Lord is commending you in this passage. Now, why is this storing up in heaven so important? Why does Jesus choose to spend this much time on money? And then he goes on to talk about the danger of being anxious about things in this life. Why is he so concerned? It is certainly not because God needs the cash. God does not need the For all we know, there could be planets made of gold out there in this universe. God does not need the cash. Why, why does Jesus spend the amount of time that he does talking about money? Why does Paul issue such stern warnings about money? The other New Testament writers, why? Well, Jesus expands on this opening paragraph with the next two. The second one I would summarize this way, point number two. Why should we invest our money in God? 
Motive number two, our earthly focus will consume our soul. Our earthly focus will consume our soul. Now, if, if you read that next paragraph and you're thinking, whoa, 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 we were talking about money and rust, and then later on I get that we're going back to money. Now we're talking about eyes and lamps and darkness. I, I think this is a metaphor. I think he's just continuing the same discussion. It's just a metaphor, and at a basic level, we can understand. He's saying, look, you know what an eye does. It gives light to the body in the sense that without the eye, you can't see. It doesn't matter how good your ears are or your hands are, your feet are. If your eyes are darkness, then you are in darkness. Your eyes that are the source of light, so to speak, for your body like a lamp, if, if they are darkness, well, then your body is darkness. How great is the darkness if the very thing that's supposed to bring light is actually dark? Then there is only darkness. And in the context, I think the metaphor is clear. Our eyes are meant to be focused on God, focused on Him, that He is the light of our life. But if instead of being focused on God, they are focused on an idol or anything that is other than God. Now, one of the reasons I think we, we struggle with this metaphor is we are used to thinking about darkness in terms of explicit sinful things. But the Bible talks about darkness in a little bit of a different way. It is anything other than God that is in the place of God. So when he says darkness, we think, well, time out. We're just talking about money. We're not talking about murder or extreme forms of lust. Or come on, come on, darkness, give me a break. No, no, the Bible considers anything that has replaced God in our life is darkness. So when it says, if the light in you, if what you're focused on, if the thing that's supposed to be focused on God is focused on anything other than God, that by definition is darkness. And the love of money and the idolizing of money is certainly a great and grievous darkness in this world. He's saying, look, if, if your focus is not on God, if it's on something other than God, you won't be able to limit that focus to just that one area, it will consume your soul. And this gets to something we've talked about before, where in our country, sometimes God is given an honored place in our life, but he's not always given our life. I, I, I want to serve God with my life. I wouldn't take that part out of my life, but that's not the way the Bible speaks. Like, I, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, in Texas and in the South, to be a Christian means you, you keep a part of your life to do Christian-y things. And you can pretty much live the way everybody else does, but you keep a Christian-y part of your life. And, and you can make up your own list. Church going, saying bless your heart instead of curse you, saying things that are nice instead of things that are mean, only gossiping in private. I mean, there's certain things like this, is, this makes you a good Christian man or a good Christian woman. But the Bible says, no, 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 no. We're not a Christian because a part of our life is for God. We're a Christian because we've given our life to God. And so when he says, look, if, if the very thing that's meant to be the lamp of your body, the light of your body, if that's broken, if your focus is broken, well then, by definition, the rest of your body will be broken as well. If, if the focus of your eye is not on God, spiritually speaking, if it's on anything else, if it's on money, if it's on promotion, if it's on 
a certain level of earthly reputation and prominence and having more than my father did and it's it's idolizing handing a certain things down to my children that has become my that's become my eye well then that that's going to affect everything else it's saying with a different metaphor what paul says to timothy it's a root of all kinds of evil it's it's not like just that one spot in the yard is nasty it's going to mess up everything else That's the point Jesus is making with an eye metaphor. If your eyes are blind, you're blind. If you're idolizing money instead of God, then godlessness will be the result in all of your life. You can't just hold on to greed and remain a faithful Christian everywhere else. It will consume you. It will darken you. How foolish for a Christian to think, I, I'm going to be a Christian in all the other ways, but I want to hold on to this. No, you, you, that's not the way the soul works. Our earthly focus will consume our soul. Our focus ought to be on God, His glory, His purposes, His kingdom, how we can honor and serve Him, how we can reveal His trustworthiness, on him as our king and our, our master. And that's actually the point that Jesus continues to build on with the third motivation, which I might summarize this way. Our money will serve our God or be our God. Our money will serve our God or be our God. Jesus says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Now, Instantly, in our day and age, we want to argue with him. Uh, I've had two jobs at the same time, so clearly I can have two masters. Don't think you're up to date on the way the economy works. Well, I, I would recommend that when Jesus speaks, we begin not arguing and listening. But more importantly, he is, he's speaking of a, of a situation where a person is owned by another person. He's using slavery as an example, and the Bible doesn't commend slavery, but here is a culture where that was common for a person's whole life to be the purview of another person as their master. And he's saying, if I can use this as an example, you cannot have one person who has control over your whole life and have another person who has control over your whole life. He's just using what for them would be a very simple, obvious point. You can't can't have two masters that control your whole life. We, we, We go to things like employment and he only has me for eight hours on Saturdays, right? Jesus is thinking, no, there is a master And to be a real master, you have the direction of this person's life. And he's saying it's impossible to have two of those people because it's the same life. He's saying you can only have one comprehensive master. You can only have one person that owns you. Only one can own you. By definition, you can't have two of those people. Therefore, 
if you attempt to have two, how absurd? What will be the result? Here will be the result. If you think you can have two masters, what will happen? You will hate one. It doesn't mean, I don't think, emotionally hate one. He's saying, relatively, you'll, you'll treat one with a kind of hatred compared to the love you have for the other. In other words, there's going to be a master who says, I lay claim to all of your life, and you're going to follow that one. And, and this one's going to be treated as if you hate him completely because you're going to neglect him in favor of the other. Or he says, what, what, what happened? You'll, you'll be devoted to one. And the other way you'll, dispute, you'll, you'll treat as, a, as, a, as though he's despised because where are you on Monday? Well, I'm doing the work of my master. Well, I thought I was your master. Well, no, I, I have to do whatever he says. Well, where were you on Wednesday? I was doing the work of my master. Well, don't you love me? Well, no, I, I love him. You must hate me. Well, compared to him, yes. Compared to, do you despise me? You weren't with me on Friday. Well, compared to him, yes. Compared to him, yes, I do. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying you put him in a situation where he's saying to the one master, yeah, you, you have to defer to him every time. Whenever he needs something, we're going to do what he wants no matter what you say. So then Jesus wants us to personalize it. There's two masters, God and money. Master money, master money demands everything. And God demands everything. All of your life. He's saying the claims that God makes on a person are comprehensive. God is not a part-time employer. God is not a part-time employer. God owns you or he judges you. Those are the two options. He owns you or he judges you for being owned by another. And Jesus is saying, you, you cannot serve God who requires all of you and serve money. You cannot it's not that you might not. It's not like most people can't, but some people are really multitasking these days. They are impressive multitaskers. And God looks down and says, well, gosh, you're getting as much done in the half of your life as other Christians do in the whole of your life, so we'll count it good. How many Americans think that way? No, you don't understand. I am, I am so impressive. What mostly takes people eight hours, I get done in four, so I count the other four as my own time. God says, no, no, because I, I gave you the capacity you have. So we're measuring you based on what I gave you, not based on what somebody else is doing. I'm measuring them based on the capacity they have. So if, if, if you can make 98 widgets in a day, you should. And it doesn't matter that you do it in half the time somebody else makes 10 widgets in a day. I'm measuring you based on what I made you able to do. It's the same point of the parable of the talents. Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm not measuring the 10-talent guy Based on the comparison with the five-talent guy, he's not able to come back and say, look, Lord, five talents more. And he says, well, I, I gave you ten. And he's not measuring the five-talent guy based on what the ten-talent guy got. He said, no, I, I gave you five. We think in terms of comparison and relativity. God does not. God says, I, I own you and I made you and I've called you to myself and you cannot have two masters. You cannot. Jesus says, you cannot. Now listen, this is one of those moments, I think, where the Word of God confronts our assumptions in our culture. 
because everything, I mean everything, in American culture fights against that being true. I don't want to, really? You cannot. Saith the Lord, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot. In other words, if you are not serving God with all that you are, you are cheating him. We are running when we should be serving him to the household of master money and trying to get some work in. God watching the whole time. Now, what does this mean very practically? Does it mean everybody should quit their jobs and go live in the desert and pray? No. No, the, the, the point is not absolute poverty. That's what they got wrong in some of the monasteries in the Middle Ages. What, what's right about this is all that I have is God's. My time is God's. My money is God's. My, my potential is God's. My gifts are God's. My, my future is God's. My past is God's. He is my master. I, I don't serve, and if we could personalize master money, we say to him again and again, I don't serve you. Yeah, but if you, if you do this, then, then that will be a, a blessing in master money's house. But, but I don't serve you. I serve God. What, what does God want? And, and if this will serve and please God, I, I'll do it, absolutely. Th- there's nothing in the Scriptures against money in and of itself. It, it's the love of money, the snare of money, the risk of money, that it's always trying to steal from God what belongs to Him. It, 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 he's like this subtle employer that, that goes outside of God's house and calls out to God's people, hey, come work for me. C- come out here and work for me. You don't have to do it all the time, just when he's not looking. Come work for me just for a little bit, and I will give you a reward. Come, come here. Just on Wednesday nights, work for me. Just with that little bit extra on the side, work for me. Just, just, just work for me. It, it's a master calling, and Jesus says, no. Your answer to master money should be, I don't work for you. And we go to the Lord, and we say, Lord, here's this job opportunity. It, it will cause me to make more money. Would this please you? Does this take me away from any other clear priorities in my life? Is this the right use Is this you giving me a chance to make more so that I can give more? Is this you providing for my needs? If so, yes, Lord, I I thank you for your provision and and the chance to give and share more. That's very different than serving master money. It, It doesn't mean we quit our jobs. It means we think of our jobs as a tool for the service of the king. It doesn't mean we have no money. It's that we think of our money ready to share and to give and to provide. We, we, we do not chain ourselves to the things of this world as, as if our goal is live as comfortable as you can without denying God and then go to heaven. 
That is not the Christian life. Live as comfortable as you can without denying God and then go to heaven. No, the Christian life is live holy for the glory of God and then go to be with him in heaven. Brothers and sisters, it has been stated infinitely by thousands of pastors, we live in the most affluent society in history. That in itself is not bad. No one should feel guilty when they drive a car home. But everyone should be thinking, how can I make sure that master money doesn't rule me? How can I give? How can I share? It's not like the scripture tells you, do this in your heart, but gives you no means. That prove it is, is really a way of saying to God again and again and again, you are my master and not him. You are my master and not him. It changes how we think about opportunities to share and to give. Because every time we're saying, not my master, you are. Brothers and sisters, we are called to invest our money in God because he's the only safe deposit because if we focus on something other than God, it will consume our whole life eventually and, and because money will either serve God or be our God. According to Jesus, those are the only two options. Let me urge fathers and mothers to not use money to idolize family experiences or even experiences for the children over training them about the priority of giving. I love family experiences. I have children. I love giving them things. But be careful that that doesn't become a snare for them to love the treasures of this life more than God. No one can make these conscience decisions for you, but all of us should be examining these passages. Lord, help me to see. Consider, for example, when you do have an offer for a better job or more money, Yes, may the Lord provide abundantly. But there ought to be a question, Lord, is, is this going to contradict other priorities you've given me in my life? And if so, the answer is a happy no. Consider your giving. If, if you're a young person, <laughs> I'm not saying this because we're just desperate for cash in the church. We, we want a giving church. I'd rather a poor church that was generous than a rich church that wasn't. Listen, I'm saying this to you if you're 12 years old, if you're 10 years old, if you're 11, if you, if you make $10, you're not going to be increasing the bank account of the church very much, but you should begin the habit right now of investing in your God. If, if you make a billion dollars, assume that God has called you to give. 
We must invest our money in God. And brothers and sisters, is he not worth the investment? Is it not a joy to say to God, here you are, Lord. This is for you. And so that you know, as pastors from the beginning of our church, this is our practice as a church as well. Because the church is not all that different (laughs) from a person. And so regularly from the beginning of our church, we give what we receive to outside of us, for church plants and helping people and giving and sending money. And how can we, okay, if we want to help this person, we have a, a disciplined amount that we give. And then regularly through the years, we say, well, God has just been so generous. We're, we're going to give, we're going to give more to help this ministry project. We're going to help that person over there. We're going to help this church. But we, we just, we want to give because we as a church don't want to be in a place where we're just looking, oh, isn't this great? We have more money. You can dominate Williamson County with all the money we have. That is, that is not what we're trying to do. We want to give because we don't want to be caught up in the love of money as a church. Let me appeal to you. Don't let that root cause many troubles. Take this invitation. Invest your money in God. If you don't regularly give or if your giving has become perfunctory and kind of a duty that you do without thinking about it, re-examine where you can increase your sacrificial giving and sharing for the sake of the glory of God and for your own soul. For the sake of Him who for our sake became poor and holds out to us a future of infinite wealth in His presence because we have spent our very short life giving those little bits of money into his hands. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would make us a generous church. Lord, make us generous as a church to other churches, to other missions, to other needs to people in our community, people outside of our community. And Lord, make us generous as members. Lord, I pray it would be a heritage of this church. Lord, I pray very specifically, Lord, for the the, the real ministry needs that we do have here. Lord, I I pray for this Generations Project. Lord, we, we want to serve our children and the spiritual children that will come from this church in, in a days and years and decades that, Lord, many of us will not see. Lord, we, we want to see that money go out to them for your use into the future. Lord, cause us to be generous. Cause us to give faithfully. We pray. And Lord, ultimately, ultimately, we, we are generous, but Lord, really, we're just giving what you have given us. All that we have comes from your hands. Receive the glory of receiving it back. In Jesus' name.